listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. I'm going to need your input in just a moment, so take that last sip of coffee and, uh, and get ready. So here's what I need you to do. I want you to just for a second, just do a rewind on all the thoughts that you've had this week. You're like, no, I've had a lot of thoughts. Okay, as, as best as you can, do a rewind on some of the things that you thought this week. Scan those memories for what you thought would bring you peace. Do it real quick, Okay. Maybe some of the things that you confessed a moment ago in confession to the Lord might pop up, but what are some of the things that you thought might bring you peace? Anybody willing to tell me what that was? Any- yeah. Thank you, David. I got it. And then I was like, relief. And then had to confess that. Yes. A phone brings peace. Yeah, yeah. What else? I know that sounds so crazy, right? But that's that's what I want us to think about. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if work would just take care of itself, then I would have peace. Yeah. What else? I've talked to some others about work this morning, right? If, if some conflicts at work or potential conflicts at work would be tied up, then I would have peace. Anybody else willing to say? No chronic pain. If I didn't have chronic pain, bless you, sister. Yeah, then that would bring peace. Anybody else? I think if, if I were honest with you, I think I would say um, if I could just get over a, a little busy hump, then rest would bring peace, the rest that I think that I need, right? Anybody else? Yeah. Amen. If my house would magically stay clean, then I would have the rest that I need, Yeah. Yeah, this is good. Some, some of us may not be willing to say the things that we thought would bring us peace, but I want, you to, I want you to think about those things. I want you to ponder those things. We all want peace. The question that we must wrestle with is, are we looking for it in the right place, from the right person? You see, this morning, I want us to comprehend that Jesus Christ alone brings the things that makes for peace. Jesus Christ alone brings the things that make for peace. As we look to the text, we'll see three aspects of Jesus' identity, who is the one that makes for peace. First, I want us to see in verses 28 through 35 that Jesus is Messiah. That is his identity. Look there in the text with me if you have your Bible. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. Now, a little bit of context. That's where, if you've been with us before, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke. But just as a help to all of us, 
Um, the places and the timing of these events are extremely important because this is the last week of Jesus's life. This is the last week because on Friday, he's going to be crucified on the cross. Now, Bethany, just to give you a little geographic perspective, is about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it was in Bethany, this place that he is drawing near to, that weeks prior, Jesus had performed the miracle of raising one of his friends. What's his name? Lazarus from the dead. John records that in chapter 11. Luke didn't record that, but we know that that's exactly where he was in Bethany when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus leaves Bethany and he goes north into Galilee. After spending a few weeks here, he begins traveling south again, coming across the Jordan River to the east. He stops in Jericho. Now, more, more perspective. There in Jericho, he stays for two days, and he heals two blind beggars and saves them from their sins. Two more disciples are added to the growing crowd around Jesus, joining them on the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But that's not all. There are potentially two million more Jews also traveling to the city of Jerusalem, if you will, on their journey to this place as it's almost time for the annual celebration of, anybody know? Passover. And that is really important because the roads are filled, people are everywhere. And in verse 28, there in the text, it says, Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. Having just told a parable about the 10 minas, as we saw last week, last week, and giving Zacchaeus a new heart there. So there they are, walking. Everyone having heard about this man, Jesus, who has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's healing blind beggars. He's giving Zacchaeus and other men like that new hearts. And he is telling parables along the way. We're following this man to the city of Jerusalem for Passover. But for Jesus, this is no stroll of joy. It's, it's not like my usual walk from our house to Queen Bee, a half a mile. It's, it's nothing fun like that because Jesus knows that in Jerusalem is his final destination. And not just that, we're told in John chapter 11, verse 57, that there's an alert out for his arrest. It says, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus is going to Jerusalem where he set his eyes on before. We see that in chapter 9 of Luke in verse 51. Jesus had set his face towards this city, and now there's an alert out for his arrest. But nothing is going to deter the Messiah from his destination. Now drawing near to Bethphage and, and Bethany, he was really close to the city that he was intending to go to. In John chapter 12, verse 1, we're told that Jesus arrived here in Bethany six days before Passover. Don't miss that. Six days before Passover. So if Passover is on Friday, back that up six days, what day are we at? Saturday. 
That was quick. I had it already. We're good, okay? We're, at, we're on Saturday. We see in the same chapter of John that a dinner had, had taken place there in honor of Jesus, a dinner with all of his friends, Mary, Martha, the, the recently resurrected Lazarus. They were having a good old time. We're also told that one of his disciples, Judas, was there, an ever-present reminder for Jesus of what was soon going to happen in six days. For in six days, Jesus was going to take on himself the sins of every single person who would ever believe. The next day, Sunday, word had gotten out that Jesus was there, that he was in Bethany at Lazarus's house. And so many are joining. They want, to, they want to see Jesus for having resurrected Lazarus. They also want to see Lazarus himself to, to prove that Jesus did what he said he did and what the rumor says he, he did. So it's likely Monday when he finally rides into Jerusalem. This is the day that he sends two of his disciples and he tells them in verse 30, look there in the Bi your Bible with me, go into the village in front of you, perhaps this was Bethphage, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Jesus says, untie it and bring it here. Now, remember, we're dealing with Jesus, the Messiah. This is Israel's deliverer, the long-awaited one. Nothing is coincidental. So when he says, go and do this, this is a part of the plan of God before the foundations of the world to see that Jesus would come as a ransom for many. This is really important. Don't miss that in the context. And so when Luke records this cult is to be one in which no one has ever sat, we're supposed to think something. We're supposed to think pure, spotless, ready for sacrifice. Animals like the heifer in Numbers chapter 19 that the people are told to bring without blemish or defect. Animals like the ones in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that have never been worked or, or pulled in a yoke. Think of Wagyu beef. Anybody fans? Wagyu? Okay, there's one. A couple of laughs. You're like, am I supposed to? Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. I've only eaten a Wagyu meatball. That's as much as I've been able to afford, okay? But it was delicious, right? And so I just recently found out why it was so delicious. A brother pointed this out to me, that the Wagyu beef cows are like super cared for. Like there are people that, that take their time out specifically, individually, to make sure that these cows are massaged daily, okay? They're, they're in their own stalls. Sometimes they even let them listen to soft, soft music so that they would be relaxed, while they're getting the massage. And then they're fed like bottles of non-alcoholic beer for their, to help with their digestion and to make that fat just as tasty and delicious as it possibly can be. You say, Chris, why in the world are you talking about Wagyu beef? I want you to know that these cows are raised in the best of environments just to be slaughtered. That's why they're so expensive. People take a lot of time so that these cows would be slaughtered. As Jesus tells his disciples to go 
and get on this cult in which no one has ever sat, we must not miss the picture here. Although this time, it's not the cult that is needing to be ready for sacrifice. It's the man who is riding on the cult, and that's Jesus the Messiah himself, who in days has been prepared. He's perfect without sin, spot, or blemish to be slaughtered for the sins of the world. He's prepared himself as a perfect, sinless sacrifice. Verse 31. And we also know about this Christ that he was born to be slaughtered so that the world might know the things that make for peace. Verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Man, when I'm reading that, I'm thinking this is where the original password game came from. Like this is why children for all time have been playing that game. Like what's the password so that you can enter? This is it right here. When the guy asks, why are you untying it? The password is the Lord has need of it. That's as secure of a password as they come, right? No one is ever going to guess that one. We don't know if Jesus has a friend who has a friend that he had previously arranged this with or if this is something much more mysterious and supernatural. It could be either because this is God here. But what we do know is that this cult and this man have been arranged at a precise Time and it is fulfilling all prophecy. This is a, a messianic prophecy, and we're seeing the mode of transportation that is going to bring the very king, the deliverer of the Jews, into the city. Nothing is stopping him from getting to Jerusalem. And it is this password, the phrase, the Lord has need of it, that is going to usher him into that place. Verse 32, look there with me. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, remember, why are you untying the colt? Now, my son has recently picked up this dramatic clearing of his throat. I have no idea where it came from. And so last week before we were going to give thanks for the food, he said that he wanted to pray. And so he stood up on our bench at our table and he said, <clears throat> Father, and I was just like, where in the world did that come from? But I can totally see this instance going down. Remember, the disciples here don't know exactly what's going on. Jesus just told them a phrase to say. They have to be looking at each other when the guy says it like, um, yeah, we, we, we got this, right? We got this. He, he just said the phrase. And so now we give the password. And they say, <clears throat> the Lord has need of it, right? This is going to work, right? And they brought it to Jesus. That's it. It worked because Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He knows exactly what is going to happen. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now the disciples arranged a makeshift saddle with their garments and they set their king on it. Jesus, the Messiah. I don't, I don't want us to miss every single minute detail that the Messiah has done, that God has done in eternity past to see that the world would know exactly the things that need to be to bring peace. He's laid it out perfectly. 
Not only do we see Jesus as Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer, the savior of the world, but we also see him here in the text, verses 36 through 40, as king. We just sang about that moments ago. Long live the king. This is who we're singing about. Verse 36, look there with me. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All this makes for a beautiful scene of rejoicing, doesn't it? Here was the moment the disciples were taking it in together, praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen, and it was so easy right then and there to attribute all of these things to God. They had obviously come from him. Their king was riding into his city as they assumed he would to take his rightful place as king. And then other disciples, they began to throw their cloaks as well. And they began to, to wave these palm branches and lay those things down as well. We see that in John's gospel also on the road before him, a red carpet of sorts as their dignitary is approaching his city. But this was no ordinary coronation, was it? It was much like Jesus' humble birth. Some farm animals, no pomp and circumstance, no crown, no jewels. A colt, some coats, and palm branches. Matthew and John's gospel record here a recitation from Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Everyone sees Jesus riding on this colt as the fulfillment of this and couldn't help but to revere him as king. Some shouting, Hosanna. Others shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace and glory in the highest. The king is here, Jesus riding on a colt. Not recorded to having been said a word is coming as the prince of peace. We have to wonder though, for ourselves as well, were they coronating as king, Jesus, someone who he was not? Were they hoping for something out of Jesus that he was not bringing? Friends, we must ask ourselves that same question this morning. As the people of God, and I imagine that there are some that don't know Christ as Lord and Savior here this morning as well, are you looking to get something out of Jesus that he himself has not said that he is bringing? Are you looking for peace that you think you need, or are you looking for the things that make for peace that God himself has brought in his son, Christ Jesus? Are you guilty of worshiping Jesus for the one you hope he will be, for the things you hope he will do for you, Instead of worshiping Jesus as he is, looking forward to the things that he will do through you and being thankful for the things that he has done. We must sit with that question this morning. Never before in Jesus' ministry had he allowed such a public display of people saying who he was. You see, all over the gospel accounts, he's always saying, hey, it's not yet time. Hey, don't tell people who I am. 
Not yet. Be quiet. Don't tell them. But now, the time is right, the place is right, the week is right, and Friday ahead of him would be the day that he would make things right. Now, give me a chance to explain just for a second why Friday is the day that Jesus is going to the cross because it's not just by happenstance, remember? It's not coincidental. This has been planned out from eternity past by God. While those crucifying thought that it was all within their power and control that, hey, we're taking this man, we're going to arrest him, and we're going to crucify him at our hands, at our whims, that certainly was not the case in the divine plan. His death was going to happen, and it was not by accident. Friday is the day that Jesus dies on the cross because that's the day when the Passover lambs were slain and that's the day when Jesus would be slain as the true and better lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. The timing is not coincidental. It's not, it is providential. I tell you that because here we are in this passage and we're on Monday. Now, what's so special about Monday? Monday is the day that Jewish families would take the lamb that they were to use in the Passover sacrifice, and they would bring that lamb inside as a pet of the family. And that week, that pet would be cared for, much like a Wagyu beef cow, cared for, made a part of the family, loved, cherished, For just a few short days, the family would grow close to that lamb, knowing that it would, in less than a week's time, be slaughtered as but a a symbol of a sacrifice for the family's sins. So as the families are taking in these lambs that were to be slaughtered, Jesus, who would be the slaughtered lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is riding into his city on a colt. Do you see the significance here? It's Monday. Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem. It's all happening at the perfect time. Jesus, the son of God, was fulfilling messianic prophecy. He's showing his omniscience, his knowing of the cult, his explaining the conversation that was to be had between the individuals there and the disciples. And he enters into the city with this as the backdrop to the crowd, humbly proclaiming, your king is here. Peace has come. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, the Pharisees couldn't stand the jubilee that was taking place all around the Messiah. And much more of that, they couldn't stand around and let Jesus be revered as the one. Being the good Pharisees that they were, though. They couldn't really imagine in that moment to use physical force to stop this. So they attempt to employ the leader, Jesus, to do it himself. Jesus, you quiet your people down. Jesus replies, I tell you what, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
We can't miss what Jesus is telling them there. First, he says, their shouting is inevitable. This is what is going to happen. This was the plan. He's kept them silent up until this point. As he healed people, he said, go and tell no one. But now it's out. There's no stopping this. Jesus is Messiah. I am king. I've come. No one can stop the world from hearing this news at this point. But second, even if they did stop, even if they do stop, if those who are claiming him to be silent were to be silent, the very stones would then cry out in witness to his identity as the Messiah and the King. Do you understand? Nobody is stopping this message from getting out, not even the stones, not the hard hearts of the Pharisees. That's not going to stop this. If everyone has to be silenced, if everyone's mouth is shut up, even inanimate objects on the ground that you would never expect in a million years to do a thing other than sit there, they'll cry out on their behalf because Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. This is going to happen. Jesus was declaring that by refusing to acknowledge him, the Pharisees were even more spiritually blind and dead than inanimate objects on the ground, such as rocks. Now, some say that in this moment, they had this beautiful view of the city of Jerusalem, and that at that time, you could see the temple, the temple that was made of these beautiful stones, the temple, the place where the people of God would come and make sacrifices to God. Those stones, you see those? If they're silent, they'll cry out. And it's here in the midst of praise when the crowds are shouting peace that Jesus speaks and weeps about a coming destruction. Pastor John MacArthur says they're adoring him, Jesus, for what they want him to be. He tells them he will be something very different than that. And so we see in verses 41 through 44, finally, that Jesus is judge. Look there in verse 44, 41 with me. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus Although deserving every ounce of the praise that was being given to him as he rides in on the colt and people are throwing down palm branches of praise in front of him, knew what the enthusiasm he was witnessing was really worth. We see the joy of the crowd. This is what we always preach on Palm Sunday. But in the midst of this, we transition really quickly and we see a, a very different emotion than we would expect from Jesus, the Messiah and King. And what is that? Intense sadness. Sorrow. For the Messiah, you see, has also come as judge. 
These people, they could not comprehend the things that make for peace. And it's ironic because Jesus is riding into the city called Jerusalem, Jeru Shalom. Shalom, the word for peace there in Hebrew. Those in the city of peace don't know the thing that makes for peace. True peace, you see, can only be found in relationship between creature and creator. Peace between God and man. That is the only place that true peace can be found. They didn't see this, and now these things were hidden from their eyes, Jesus says. And so Jesus starts to sob and heave. He's agonizing over the very hearts that are singing his praise. As judge, Jesus knew that the destruction of this city would soon be inevitable. The temple, the stones, they would all be destroyed. And for many of them, damnation was certain to come. Why? Because the text says they did not know the time of their visitation. They missed it when God's Messiah came and dwelt among them. They missed the moment. One commentator said, these people had the revelation of God as he had made it known to them in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They had the continuing evidence that God was active in the life and ministry of Jesus. They could see in him that God had not forgotten his people. There was every reason for them to have welcomed Jesus as his disciples did, but they refused to accept it all. They would now have to live with the consequences of their rejection. It is this that brought forth Jesus' tears. Now, family, if God is standing before his city, the city of peace, weeping over those that his promise first went to, should we not do the same? While we should be confident that Jesus is in fact coming to judge, we shouldn't be quick in the here and now to celebrate. Oh, that we would receive God's heart of compassion for those that have forsaken his peace for that of another. Would we see even the fickleness of our own hearts this past week as some of you were courageous enough to share We often trade his peace for the peace of another. Oh, that that might bring us to our knees. Oh, that God would break us and give us hearts of compassion. Oh, that we would weep over those who have yet to turn to Christ in repentance by faith for the forgiveness of their sins. We see in John's gospel that even the Messiah's disciples did not understand all that was happening, and they wouldn't until after Jesus is raised from the dead. And so I ask you again this morning, friends, we all want peace, but are we looking in the right place for it from the right person? You see, many in the crowd, the Pharisees, the disciples, still thought their biggest issues to be something else, the marginalization by the Roman government the difficult financial times that they were living in and that were upon them, higher taxes, not being recognized in society in the way that they thought they should be. They were not predominantly concerned about God's judgment or the forgiveness of their sins. And you know what? Today, most still feel a similar way. Why? 
because we don't think that we need what only the gospel can provide. We think that we need other things. And on that Monday, it was the same for the crowd outside of Jerusalem. They were excited about their new social status in the world once Jesus rightfully took his place as king. Once he took his place on the throne, they were hopeful that things were going to turn around for them financially. And the housing woes that they were about to experience would turn around, right? And that they would no longer be marginalized as a people anymore. They missed the fact that what they needed most was peace with God. You see, God's visitation of his people in Christ would either bring salvation or judgment. If Jerusalem would not have Jesus as her savior, then they would have him as their judge. If you will not have Jesus as your savior, you will have Jesus as your judge. Jesus came riding on a colt with a donkey at his side, objects of sacrifice and peace. But I want you to hear Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, that that won't be the animal that he is riding on that final day when he comes to redeem his people fully and finally. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, tells us that he will be riding a white horse on that day. John writes, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Those in Christ, you see, on that final day will see that horse and think victory and those that see that horse apart from Christ will know that judgment has come upon them. And so Jesus says, weeping, not celebrating in this moment, weeping, agonizing, sorrowful over what these people were doing. If you had only known what makes for peace. What makes for peace, you ask? Being right with a holy God. Peace comes through faith, repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ Jesus alone for their forgiveness. Will you trust in Christ today to bring you the peace that only God can bring? You've heard the good news of Christ, that he lived a perfect life, that he prepared himself, that he was sinless, spotless, pure, he died a death at the hands of angry men that thought that they were in charge of his death, but we know that it was the plan of a sovereign God to see that his son would die at their hands and take on his very wrath, the wrath that you and I deserved because of our sin, to deal with and take upon ourselves for all eternity. Jesus Christ, on that coming Friday, took it upon himself and he brought us a people who didn't deserve peace, the things that make for peace, if you would but just trust in him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins today, you would have it. You've heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus. You have the opportunity today to turn from your sins while it is still today. Judgment, my friends, will be issued from Christ if rejected. So as we conclude, I want to offer a, a challenge. 
because it will be easy in just a moment to intellectually assent to knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Here's what I mean. It, It will be easy in just a moment when I conclude that you pray and those of, you, uh, those of us who say that we have faith in Christ Jesus will walk to one of these tables in the room and we will intellectually assent that we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We'll take communion and then we'll sing songs to the Savior right after that. That would be easy for any of us in the room to do. But would you consider, with the help of the Holy Spirit this morning, whether or not your life testifies that Jesus is the one who makes for peace. I have to be honest. Man, if, you, if you peel back the, the many layers of, of uh, my insides, well, I, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to do that. The, the many layers of the old man that often rears his head in my life If you peeled that back this week, you might see where I would say at moments, many moments where true peace is found, it would say something like, if only there were better and more frequent positive outcomes as a direct result of my parenting, then peace would be just just revving up, just overflowing in my heart. If I could just get over a busy hump, then peace would just be overflowing out of my heart. So a challenge to us this morning, parents specifically, where are we showing our children even in this community of faith that our true peace lies? Sports, if you'll do well enough at those things, extracurricular activities, if you could, if you could have the skills and the abilities, if you would just practice hard enough, then we could say, well done, you have it, and now I have peace because I as a parent have worked so hard. Academics, good behavior, married folks. Where are we showing our single brothers and sisters in our community of faith that true peace lies? In marriage? Why would we pretend to show that? And yet we do. That true peace is found there. If if you would only but have a spouse, then you might have true peace. If you're not in pursuit of a spouse, you can't have peace. Church, where are we showing the outside world that our true peace lives? If we intellectually assent to Jesus as Messiah, as king, as judge, then he must have a rule and reign over the very hearts and lives that we live in this community, right? Church, where are we showing the outside world that our true peace lives? If our unbelieving neighbors got a hold of our calendars and I hold it so religiously, Would the way we spend our time look the same as theirs? Would it have the same priorities? If they got a hold of our bank accounts, would it look the same? Does it have every single subscription just like the rest of the world's? Do we spend the exact same amount as the world does on giving to the things of God? The same amount of you name it. Do our bank accounts look the same? Do we have the same priorities? Or, by God's grace, 
I pray that God would be using us, growing us into a people, a sanctified people who would look more and more increasingly like, like Jesus Christ, growing as disciples, looking more and more like him, showing the world more and more, and although we won't get it right always, a people who are constantly repenting. But are we a people who are growing in a way that others on the outside might say, that is an individual, that is a man, that is a woman, that is a boy, that is a girl whose peace is not found in the things of this world? Would they see that we have given our lives to see that others would have true peace found in Christ and Christ alone? If they saw the the secret moments in our lives, would they see us weeping like Jesus for those that had traded heavenly divine peace for the peace that is only temporary? If Jesus is Messiah, and this is confirmed, you have no good rational explanation for rejecting him as savior of the world. This is what many in the crowd did, though. This is what the Pharisees did. They kept looking at the facts and completely dismissing them. Prophecy after prophecy was being fulfilled before their eyes. Situation after situation, if they had only knew the password, right? Miracles and wonders were shown in front of their eyes. If Jesus is king, his humble coronation on a cult, being paraded with palm branches would show us a way to live under his good rule and reign, and we must submit ourselves to him. And finally, if Jesus is judge, he has the final say. If you would but trust in him by faith today for the forgiveness of your sins, you will not experience him in this way. Now, for those in Christ, there is incredible encouragement. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you after we pray to share in a meal called communion, a meal that Jesus Christ himself instituted, where the body of Christ in the bond of peace, the peace that Jesus established for us, and we celebrate in this meal our common union. Today, let us remember, family, that there will be no destruction, no condemnation, as we heard earlier through our confession of sins for those of us in Christ Jesus. No judgment. Christ took all of that on the cross on that Friday. He bore the wrath of a holy God, and by participation in this meal, we remember Jesus' death and proclaim it until he returns again. Now, finally, I want you to hear this. Revelation 7, 9 gives us a final Palm Sunday to look forward to. It says then that there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And on that day, there will be no more speculating. There will be no more wondering as to who that man is. You and I, everyone will know that Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is King. Jesus is Judge. 
And Jesus Christ alone brings the things that make for peace. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to God forever and ever. That will be our theme one day, church. Let's pray.